wonderful people. Do you want a new credit card, but you're not sure how to choose? The good news is you don't need to apply for the first offer you see in the mail. Credit Karma can help you zero in on the right option for you and help you apply with more confidence. Credit Karma uses your credit profile to show you offers that are tailored to your financial situation. They also partner with a wide range of credit card issuers, so you can be sure that you are exploring all sorts of options. Best of all, Credit Karma uses your credit data to show you your chances of approval before you even apply, helping you apply with more confidence. Comparing cards on Credit Karma is 100% free and won't affect your credit scores. So are you ready to find the card for you? Head to Credit Karma and check out your personalized mix of offers today. Go to creditkarma.com or the Credit Karma app to find the card for you. That's creditkarma.com. Hi, beautiful people. My name is Brenda Davies. I'm the creator and host of In the Gray. And as implied by this podcast name, we're diving into the subjects that people wrongfully believe to be black and white, when in fact, they're deeply complicated, nuanced, and gray. Today's episode challenges the binaries of good and evil, cops and robbers, masculinity and femininity, just to name a few. In our society, many people, especially, let's get real, affluent or middle-class raised white people like myself, were socialized to believe that cops are the good guys, criminals are the bad guys, and that the only path to justice is incarceration, aka sending people to prison. But today's guest, Richie Reseda, will blow those binaries apart. Richie was freed from prison in 2018 and is a producer and abolitionist feminist organizer. He founded Question Culture, a social impact record label, and Richie co-founded Initiate Justice, which organizes people directly impacted by mass incarceration and works to change laws to end it. In this conversation, you'll witness that no matter how much I attempted to research ahead of time, Richie still absolutely blew my mind. Because truth be told, myself and many white people I know are just beginning to understand the injustice that is the prison industrial complex. Many of us are just beginning to challenge our beliefs that those who break the law are bad people and that the way our system repays violence or even just alleged violence with more violence and incarceration cannot be the answer. You will learn in this interview, as I just did from Richie myself, that children today in the United States are arrested from schools for rule violations, thereby subjecting them to the violent assault and kidnapping that is disguised as the word, quote, arrest. I don't want to go to the police car. You don't want to? No, please. You have to. No, please. Give me a second. Please. Let me go. No. The sad truth is that whether a child or teen is being arrested for rule violations or a violent offender is sentenced to time, the prison industrial complex is not and has never been built on justice and rehabilitation. Meanwhile, true justice for harm done, paired with the redemptive power of healing and rehabilitation, is what every human being deserves. 
Richie Reseda will challenge you to cease dehumanizing incarcerated people, no matter what they've done, and present the fact that these people are not likely evil, but rather complex individuals who, more often than not, have made choices when little choice was available to them, or who were introduced to the label of criminal before they even graduated high school, or sometimes even middle school. Richie Reseda tells his story in multiple interviews online, as well as in the acclaimed CNN documentary, The Feminist on Cell Block Y, which chronicles success stories, a transformational feminist program that Richie founded for incarcerated men. When given the opportunity to express their pain and shame, many of these men begin to heal. The kind of violence that's like acceptable in terms of how men were supposed to be, I was still, that was still being affirmed in my house. Like my dad told me on my first day of first grade, don't let anybody hit you. If you think they're gonna, he said, if someone hits you, hit them back. And if you think they're gonna hit you, hit them first. <laughs> and he would say, my son is in the punching bag. And you know, if we're, if we get into it and we started crying, you know, he would call me Regina rather than Richard or, you know, there's kind of this, value in America that yes, men are supposed to be violent, but only when it's appropriate. Only if they work in law enforcement or if they work in the military or if, uh, you know, the justifiable violence or the righteous violence or whatever. Um, at 15, I murdered somebody. I did it because I was small. And I don't mean that physically, but I mean emotionally, like my self-esteem, I felt small and I wanted to feel big. And that was a chance for me to feel big. And the truth is, I didn't feel big after that. At the age of three, I, I was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. I was this crippled kid who was not normal and who was just always sick or never, never able to do things. And I, I found myself in this quest of trying to be normal. Many times we tell ourselves that that's our survival. Like, in order for me to survive, I have to be a man. I have to carry myself a certain way. And if if I'm not that, then I'm going to fake it till I make it. For me as a kid, you know, I was, I was beaten. I was, I was molested. I was tortured, all that stuff. And I never had anywhere to go with that. And being emotionally unintelligent, I lashed out a lot to a lot of different people throughout my whole life to where, you know, at 22, I, I ended up getting a bar fight and stabbing five people. And, uh, and I think that... To, to, to stem that way back when kids are little, just listen to them, you know, and be there for them. Somehow that's the secret is just understanding what we're feeling and being able to express it because I was, n I was never able to do that as a kid. I didn't just wake up one day and want to be violent. I didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I'm just going to become a raging alcoholic. You know, stuff happened. Like me and my father, Tony had two emotions. Either he's quiet or he gets angry all the time. She's one of the two. So I learned from him. So the only way I used to know how to express my uh, emotions was through anger. My first example of violence, I remember when I was four years old. I remember seeing my uncle uh, beating up his girlfriend. And I was a little kid and I was scared. I was scared as hell, man. They appeared to have power in con and control in the household, there was there was some payoffs there. It's hard. It's hard to deal with knowing things that you were taught were bullshit and putting them away and starting over. Cause it's like, is there a fear to start over? Hell yeah. Why? It's because you don't. It's the fear, the unknown. What you know, like 
What, if you don't have this that you're used to, what do you have? It doesn't define you to be a man by you having to whoop somebody. It doesn't define you to be a man because you have 10 women. It doesn't define you being a man because you make the most money. You see what I'm saying? There is any possible way to take back the things that I've done to all the people I've harmed, including the people I've harmed in, in those robberies, um, especially them, then I would do it. But obviously there's not. So all, all one can do once you're here is try to stop stuff like that from happening in the future. Men who are not incarcerated are also living in a prison. Though they're not in a physical prison like this, I can't feel in front of everybody. I'm one way when I'm by myself, and I can only show emotion if I'm by myself or do it in some kind of ex acceptable way by like having sex or by like playing music and getting high or whatever. Man, it, those are chains that we put on ourselves that we do not have to have. The whole part of existing in this world has nothing to do with being a man. It has everything to do with being human. I know this may be a challenge, calling us to change how we view punishment and justice after being indoctrinated into these false beliefs for so dang long, but it is deeply important that we do so. And if you're a Christian like myself or someone who simply respects and believes in Christ consciousness, this cycle of repentance, redemption, and restoration is something every human being deserves. And now, on to our conversation with Richie Reseda. I've been listening to so many of your interviews, and it's truly such an honor to speak with you. Thank you for this. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm so impressed. And just to give you, like, a little context about me before we start, I... Um, I'm, I was your like classic ignorant white girl primarily, like grew up in um, white suburban middle-class school with like three black people <laughs> and- Wow, where? Um, in Cinnamons in New Jersey. Okay. And the, the, like the wild thing about it is that I live 15 minutes from Camden, New Jersey, which was like always one of the most violent cities in America. I was born in Camden. My mom grew up in Camden when she was like living in poverty with her mom. So I was like adjacent to a lot of the things you talk about. And also my dad's taught in inner city Philly um, to fully black and Puerto Rican students. So the disparity was always so apparent and in my face in that way. Like I had a computer in my computer class. My dad is teaching that same class with 10 or eight kids on one computer every summer. Like I guess the first day of school in September, he would sit around the dinner table and my dad would be in tears and he would just tell us about like the two to five kids who were lost to gun violence over the summer. So it was like always adjacent, but it was like that wrong side of the tracks kind of thing that I had experienced in my life. And then just to wrap it up more recently, I think about five years ago now or so I was walking down my street cause I ended up, um, moving into this predominantly Mexican, like Latinx community where gang violence is massive in LA, you know, the Avenue boys. Yeah. Oh, you live in LA now. Yes. You yes. live in the avenues. Well, I don't live there anymore um, because I have a baby and it's like really legit dangerous over there. Mm -hmm. But I lived there for a while and I befriended one of the Avenue boys and um, and we talked as he came like in and out of prison for probably like four years. So he taught me a lot about 
the politics and he taught me a lot about violence and the system that he was stuck in. And so I'm like a bit primed for this conversation, half ignorant, half like kind of getting somewhere. And yeah, so that's why I'm just like really grateful for this conversation and I'm excited to share it with people. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that all. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. I, I was locked up with some dudes from avenues The avenues Highland park thing is, um, really, really violent, really sad. Yeah, I know. I know. He, he told me a lot about it. I think his dad is like a quadruple murder, um, person. He's been in prison like his whole life, I guess, almost. If I can just say just in the, in the spirit of learning, I think, um, cause I experienced it with someone who's really open to that. I feel yeah. like there, when you were trying to describe his dad, you were thinking of like how to say it. And I, I just want to say that it's, it's cool to just say that he killed four people as opposed to like, he is a quadruple murderer, which then kind of defines him by those choices, which mm. um, are not necessarily definitive of, of who he is today. And um, yeah, those kinds of terms like murderer, or rapist, or like these things that tie us to the bad decisions we make one, it, it blocks us from ever really growing because then it's just like, I guess this is what I am now. But two, it, it justifies the system and, and and then causing violence to us because then we're no longer people. We're, we're murderers or rapists or inmates or whatever, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're just going to start by telling your story, the abridged version. Um, really interested in how you began like getting introduced into the prison industrial complex. Um, just from the very beginning, where does your story start? Yeah, I'm from Los Angeles, California. I, I identify, I've, I've always kind of identified with um, my maleness, not quite enough, not quite to the extent that I think the world really wants me to, but um, <laughs> I, I am a cis dude. And I think that that's important to point out. Um, I'm black. My, my father is black and from the projects in um, the San Fernando Valley, which is in the northern part of the city of LA. Um, and my mom is white and Jewish and from originally from New York, but then from the suburbs in the San Fernando Valley. I grew up on the east side of the valley um, being criminalized from the time I was very, very young. Um, the first time that I was criminalized uh, that I know of, I was four years old. I was in preschool. Um, it starts always with you know, teachers and school administrators, then it very quickly becomes cops. That's just been a pattern I've seen in most criminalized people's lives. Um, first time I was suspended, I was four years old. Um, What'd you do, supposedly? I, I, I put a magnet by the computer um, and it messed up the computer. I mean, this was 1996 or something and it messed up the computer apparently. And um, I got suspended and it was terribly embarrassing for my mom because my mom worked at my preschool. I also, I remember when I was four, there was, um, while in preschool, they did this thing where they brought like a cop to school to teach us to like not talk to strangers. So this LAPD officer comes with a gun um, and gives us a speech about how not to talk to strangers. He walks out, he comes back with a tissue on his head and sunglasses and walks up to me and says, hey, do you, wanna, do you want some candy? And uh -huh. I said, sure. So he walked me out of the school and I got in his car and we drove around the block and gave me a piece of candy. And then he brought me back and then he tried to embarrass me in front of the whole school. Like, look, Richard came with us to, you know, he, he talked to strangers. And I'm like, you're not a stranger. You're the cop who was just here. Like, 
and my mom was terribly embarrassed and everybody's laughing at me. And then I was just like, oh, okay. Like, I can't trust you. <laughs> like, you just tried to trick me and, and like treat me as a joke. And I don't know why you did that, but. Well, um, it's interesting that he inadvertently gave you the correct message, which is you cannot trust cops. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like. Um, that is that is such a mind fuck though. I mean, I just for the record want to state that I'm horrified by everything you've said so far, including getting suspended at four years old. Yeah, it's absurd. It's absurd, you know. But the notion of revenge as justice is just such a clearly not helpful paradigm. Um, yeah. But we have incorporated it and and bought into it deeply um, mm-hmm. in this culture. So. But yeah, my life kind of just continues like that in in various ways. Um, I was expelled from a school when I was eight years old for talking too much. Um, I uh, the first time I got arrested, I was eleven years old um, for playing too rough. I was arrested again for leaving school to get a haircut. Um, You're a, uh, how is that legal? Because the the laws are not written to protect people the laws are written to get people elected and protect corporate interests largely um so the cops the the laws that people need to understand la has the biggest school police department in the country it's actually the los angeles school police department which is not lapd it's not the los angeles sheriffs it is a third police department is one of the bigger police departments in the world and it is just in los angeles schools and there are armed officers on Los Angeles schools right now, what do they have to do besides arrest children? That is what they are there to do. So, you know, they, they found one. Okay. You're, you're already blowing my mind because just, I did a lot of research like on you and on your work. And I have been, I mean, my knowledge on the prison industrial complex is like an inch deep. Like I'm just starting my journey, but (sighs) I just really can't believe, I mean, everything you're saying is astonishing to say that's one of the largest police departments in the entire world. And and their whole purpose is to arrest children for petty things that are not even under the umbrella of criminality. For rule violations. But what is criminality is completely invented. The idea of criminality is completely invented, right? Like you take something, you make it against the law, it just became criminal. It didn't doesn't necessarily mean that it's harmful. There, there are plenty of things that are illegal that are not harmful. And there are plenty of things that are harmful and not illegal. And the only reason that things are determined as illegal or not is when legislators decide they are and legislators have all kinds of motives outside of public safety. So for example, there are corporations that poison water supplies that affect millions of people that nothing happens to them. And then there are people who do other terrible things like robberies, like I committed when I was 19 and, you know, they try to give me 150 years to double life. So the, there, there is no connection between legality and, and morality and the nineties and early two thousands, um, were a very, um, reactionary period. You know, I was in second grade when Columbine happened. Mm. Um, and even though I went to a school with virtually no white kids, my school is almost all Latinos. Um, you know, they they took something that two not well white kids did in Colorado and took it out on a bunch of you know black and brown kids in the Los Angeles Unified School to School District because the LAUSD is almost all black and brown. Most white kids in LA go to private school, so, so statistically, right. So, 
um, we were just easy targets. Damn. Damn. Okay. So I thought, I mean, there's so much to get into here. <laughs> um, we were talking before we started about the concept of shame and how you're immediately invited into this world and you're immediately invited into the prison industrial complex and into the idea of justice being punishment and into these arbitrary things that don't cause harm except maybe to a computer with a magnet when you're four years old. I'm getting lost in the mire of like how asinine it all is, but I'm just curious, like just to imagine, because I have a two-year-old son, I'm just imagining his introduction. Like, do you remember a time when you were moving through the world more intuitively and you were just feeling like yourself or you were feeling confident or you were feeling safe as a child? Or did you always kind of have this looming danger um on you all the time yeah i do i remember a lot of times like that actually really um, yeah i remember being seven years old and we were we woke up absurdly early as children tend to do i have two little brothers so they must have been five and three and we were gonna watch Aladdin part six or whatever, one of the direct to video Aladdin, <laughs> you know, it was like the late nineties. We still had VHSs and, um, we're all, we were running out of our room. Me and my brother shared a room. We were running out the room. And my dad told me, he caught me in the hallway and he said, not you, you go back in the room. And I went back into the room and, and I grew up with a very conservative Christian father, um, who, who also believed in, you know, spanking children. Um, and I, he had this whole conversation with me about how my second grade teacher said I talked too much and how that was unacceptable to be talking so much in class. And then he hit me and um, I wasn't allowed to go watch movies with my brothers. I just had to stay in the room and then go do chores for the rest of the day. And I remember that, that moment so well because I, I woke up not aware of there being any problem. I was not aware there was a problem with my second grade teacher. I loved mm -hmm. my second grade teacher. To this day, I think about her as one of the most fantastic teachers that I've ever had. I, I remember her name. I remember what her classroom looked like and smelled like. I thought her and I were good. Mm. Um, but I was also fascinated by this idea that talking was a problem. I was like, I genuinely didn't understand what he meant. You talk too much. Like, what does that even mean? What's wrong with talking? Mm. Um, and why does it warrant me being hit? Because I definitely understood that hitting didn't feel good. So how was talking worth being hit over? Um, but yeah, that, that was one of those moments where I, I was moving through the world very intuitively, very much a child, seven years old, and um, was faced with shame and violence for reasons I didn't understand. Yeah. Yeah, I was witness to a white affluent woman somewhere in Southern California who saw her two or three-year-old child hit a child. So she pulled him aside and hit him to tell him not to hit the child. And I was like astonished by the stupidity of it, just this sheer stupidity of it. I was like, damn, I'm not even here to judge you, but holy shit, that is stupid yeah um, thinking and that's of, what we do with prisons 
Yeah. So thinking of like you as a child already, like the intuitive moments that you are recalling are moments of this complete dissonance between how is this thing correlated to this thing? How is this thing supposed to curb a behavior that I'm not even understanding? Like how much more beneficial it would have been to have this second grade teacher or even your father or some sort of figure come and be like, there's a time and a place to talk or whatever the actual issue was. Like, how were you supposed to learn except to understand that there is always a cloud of fear and shame over you. And I obviously like cannot relate to you on so many levels, but I also lived in my household with the threat of constant violence as well, really because my dad grew up in a very patriarchal system. He is from an immigrant family in the 1940s. He's in his 80s now. He was hit with a cat of nine tails, like belt. Mm -hmm. And then he downgraded with my brother and sister to just one belt. And then he downgraded for me and my brother to just an open hand. So I feel like to him, he felt like it was more compassionate. Mm -hmm. But when I looked and counted, like what we could get in trouble for is like, oh, I got hit because the TV was too loud, but I didn't know it was too loud. I got hit because I spilled milk. I got hit because I talked back, but I thought I was just like, sticking up for myself. And even those conflicting messages, like, don't you want your child to be empowered to speak their mind or to tell you when something is amiss and you're disempowering them in all of these ways? Yeah. Um, I think there's a belief that lives at the heart of how we use violence and shame in this country. And the belief is people starting from the time as children are inherently bad. And you, you need to use violence to scare them out of being inherently bad. Yes. Um, and that's where the whole notion of hitting children comes from. That's where the whole notion of prison comes from. Um, the death penalty, this idea that like people are, are, are inherently bad. So we have to have violence to scare them out of being bad. Um, and abolition offers us a different, a whole different set of values um, that says people are inherently complicated but we all want to be healthy, safe, and fulfilled. So if we can do the hard work of building understanding of how to be healthy, safe, and fulfilled together, then we can accomplish that. Amen. Yes. I watched The Feminist on Cell Block Y. It's hey. so, oh, so gorgeous. I My heart was broken the whole time. And I think it did such a beautiful job of really outlining how a lot of the men in that room, yourself included, got introduced to the mentality where they began to believe that violence was the power that they had, or it was even the um, just the way that they would survive in the world, the way that they would be able to protect their partner, protect their children, and then they would go and teach their children to be violent, primarily the boys. So then they can therefore perpetuate this idea that violence protects you and being known as a violent person is something that will keep you safe. And then of course that's compounded with you're all introduced to the prison industrial complex since childhood. Everyone's stories, the inception of them were in elementary school, most of them, if not middle school at the latest. Some men are in prison for murders they committed at 15 years old. and. I found, uh, would you call it soul death? Was that the term? There was. Oh, Bell Hooks uses a term called soul murder. 
Soul murder. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm honestly just getting to familiarize myself with her and I'm so grateful mm. because I know you use a lot of her work to really inform the work that you do. Yeah. Um, but men were talking in the documentary about that moment of soul murder when they thought, I remember one guy uh, discussing how he always knew his father was a place where he could come and cry, that he would sit on his mm. lap. If he fell in the street, you know, he would come back to his dad and cry in his lap. And then one day he hit a certain age and his dad kicked him off his lap and was like, no, now it's different. Now you're a man and really started to indoctrinate him into mm. what we would refer to as a toxic masculinity, because I always want to reiterate masculinity isn't bad. There is a toxicity to the system of violence and patriarchy that makes it bad. So can you tell me more about the concept of soul murder and when you might've been introduced to that yourself? Yeah, I mean, you 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 named it right. Bell Hooks, um, who's the author who much of my work when I was in prison and doing toxic masculinity workshops with my organization, Success Stories. Um, much of my work was really just spreading her work and translating her work into the tongue of prison, um, and making space for for us as men to grow through observing her work. She has this concept called soul murder, which is the, the process through which we indoctrinate little boys into patriarchy, where we teach them you have to be toxic in order to be a valuable human being. Um, or rather, you have to be a violent person to be a real man and to be a worthwhile person. Mm -hmm. um, and it looks just like that. It looks like the first moments where we're telling boys that they can't have emotions. It looks like the moments where we're telling boys they're supposed to be sexual and in a very specific way, um, where we're telling boys they have to be violent, where they're telling boys that we, they have to have money. I mean, in my life, I too grew up with a father who was raised in the same way and who raised us, me and my brothers to be the same way and would make fun of us if we cry and, um, you know, call us girl names. He would call me Regina if I, if, uh, I expressed any emotion. He would call that whining. Um, so I grew up, I, I grew up very similarly to that. Yeah. So you also said, I, I believe it was you who said it, that there are three elements that really um, are the kickers when it comes to these issues, which is poverty, trauma, and patriarchy, that without those three elements, there would be no need for men to commit these acts of violence. So since we're kind of already in the trauma spectrum of the conversation, can you get into that a little bit? I didn't grow up around a lot of extreme violence. I mean, I remember someone got shot on my block when I was eight years old. That was a big deal. But um, I grew up in a two-parent household that was largely um, working class and quote-unquote normal. Um, the, the violence that I grew up receiving the most was from the police. Mm. You know, like that, yeah. that's, that was the the... The, the people who enacted violence against me um, from the time I was youngest were um, teachers and school administrations and, and cops. Um, I mean, my dad would hit us and I, I don't want to like, I don't want to undermine that fact, but I also don't want to like compare that to somebody who's growing up seeing, you know, 
women getting beat up and I, I didn't grow up around seeing stuff like that. I saw stuff like that with, in my family and I got a little older, like into teenage years. But, but I think to your point, harm happens in the community because of poverty, trauma, and, and, patriar- and patriarchy. And there, that, that trauma is then recycled on itself because we have a system that responds to that violence with more violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that very much was reflected in the way that I grew up, for sure. I, would, I, do, I did not grow up in a household or a culture that centered solutions because American culture doesn't center solutions. American culture centers violence and punishment. Christianity centers violence and punishment. The whole notion of hell is an extremely violent notion that you will be, in, you will be tortured for eternity. Mm-hmm. This is the belief system that I was... <laughs> raised in, you know, that, that, that God is down with that type of punishment with that type of, I don't even like the word punishment because it's such a euphemism for revenge. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's what I was raised in, but I I, I wasn't raised in like receiving extreme. I don't know. It's it's all relative. I was hit with a belt. Some people might call that extreme. I I wouldn't call it some of the highest levels of abuse that I've heard of. And I think that the reason why it's so important for me to say that is because um, it's not just the extreme things that happen way out there that you know uh, some of uh, some of the listeners here today might not even be able to imagine. Mm. It's the everyday violence that we do normalize. An arrest is an extremely violent act. I remember one of the first times I got arrested in school. I was thirteen. I was in middle school, and I had got arrested for uh, leaving school to get a haircut, and. Three of my homegirls who are also eighth graders, I remember when the cop was walking me through the school in handcuffs, I saw in handcuffs, I saw them and they were crying. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what are y'all crying about? Like, y'all ain't the ones getting arrested. <laughs> um, I'm, you know, I'm friends with them to this day. And obviously as an adult, it's very obvious to me that that's an extremely traumatic thing for them to even witness mm. seeing their 13-year-old friend be tied up. We, it's important that we call these things what they are. An arrest is a kidnapping. Handcuffs, uh, to, to, to handcuff someone is to tie them up. These are extremely violent acts. When someone goes to jail, they're being held at gunpoint against their will. You know, these are extremely violent acts. And that's, that's the violence that I became most familiar with way before I ever got involved with gangs, gang shit or anything like that. Um, the first violence I received was, was at the hands of the system. I love that you went into all of that because trauma is as simple as a boy starting to cry and someone just like slapping his hand and be like, man up, don't cry. Don't be a pussy. That is traumatic in itself also because it informs you of the way that you are to behave. And those sort of stunted and stifled emotions can really wreak havoc. Like even when we look scientifically and like into biology and everything, you can see that actually breeds sickness and illness. When we look at men and the suicide rates and how men are killing themselves in droves in comparison to other demographics, it's not difficult to see how, again, this all goes back to these patriotic or patriotic Kind of though, I guess it was a Freudian slip. (laughs) Patriarchal (laughs) systems that we've made fucking patriotic when they absolutely should not be. Um, And I can just tell you little observations that I've seen as an ignorant white girl that came from suburbia. Like 
when I was living, you know, I've lived in different places in LA, haven't been affluent at every point. You know, I've lived in some rough neighborhoods and seeing baby formula locked up behind Mm -hmm. the counter, that is violent and traumatic to me. That was so astonishing. Like when the veil was pulled from my eyes and I actually saw that for what it was, it made me physically ill. It made me want to steal everything in the store to be frank. Cause I was like, wow, fuck you. Like you have to lock up baby formula. Why the hell do you think a woman is stealing baby formula? A man is stealing it for his woman. Like that really blew my mind. Yeah. I didn't know that they didn't do that everywhere in LA. Um, no, absolutely not. No. That- that, you know, cap- capitalism is such a sickness. It, it's such a social disease. Um, one, you know, stores could be looking at their loss, their losses and see, oh, people were stealing a lot of baby formula. And then in that moment, they had a choice to make. They could think about why is that and how can we help because those are human beings trying to feed babies. Or they can just say, that's not good for our bottom line. How do we, what's the cheapest way to solve that? put it behind some plexiglass and a little lock. Um, mm-hmm. And and again, it's the same, the, the, the prison system is the same, works the same way. We have a system that is continuously traumatizing people. Um, we have a system that was not built to serve humans. It's built to serve corporate capital and, and the gain of capital. And humans are simply tools and resources to be used, human resources, to be used to uh, attain capital. And in the making of that, you have people who make all types of bad choices. What's the cheapest, easiest way to get rid of them? Just put them behind a, a lock and key. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's frustrating to imagine that people will buck against the idea that there's anything wrong with capitalism or anything wrong with patriarchy. So would you mind diving into like a little bit of how capitalism plays into the issue at hand, plays into this, this mass incarceration that we have in our country? Yeah. I think people buck up against the idea that capitalism is, capitalism is bad because people don't know what capitalism is people assume that capitalism is the market economy or, or the, you know, the quote unquote free market where you can buy things if you want to buy them and, you know, kind of be in charge of your own financial life. And attain the American dream. Like if I just work hard enough, I'll be able to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think people feel defensive over that. And that makes sense to me. Um, I'm defensive over that. I want to have uh, agency over my own financial life too. But that's not capitalism. Capitalism is um, the idea that the purpose of the economy is to amass as much personal wealth as possible. And that when we, when we are all looking out for ourselves in that way, that that will be what's best for everybody. That's what capitalism is. Capitalism is, is, is more of a spirituality. It's a social mandate than, than it is an economic system. Um, if you read the, you know, the early texts of capitalism, um, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the, the, the invisible hand of the free market and how if we, being selfish is what's good for everybody and greed is good. You know, that, that is capitalism, um, putting profit over all else. And that shit is, is ter- it's in misaligned. I, I try to stay away from things like good and bad 
but it's in, it's misaligned with the natural world. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, the the natural world doesn't work like that. It doesn't work where every living thing is um, at odds with every other living thing. Mm-hmm. It actually is cooperative. Um, and we can't have a system that is about extracting and amassing as much wealth as possible on a natural planet. Eventually it will deplete the planet, um, including us as, you know, we are resources on the planet. We are parting the living planet too. And that's the process where we're in now. And frankly, I don't think we're going to make it. Um, but <laughs> just to be honest, like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're going to beat the capitalists. I think they're going to destroy the planet and we're all going to die. That's just what I think. But that's maybe a conversation for another day. Um, <laughs> Um, like, well, thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. Like, it's over. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think our job is to resist as much as possible and to try to recreate, um, you know, a, a livable planet and culture as much as possible. But your question was, how does a prison industrial complex exist within capitalism? Well, it all goes back to slavery. <laughs> yeah. I think because a lot of people don't know there were no prisons of police before the, before the end of slavery. Not even close. The police as an institution just turned 100 years old. Like, it's a very new institution. Human beings have been on the planet for 200,000 years without police. So when we talk about abolishing the police and people say that sounds crazy, just understand police sounds crazy. Like, police is the new idea. We, we didn't hire random strangers to kidnap people uh, on our behalf prior to 100 years ago. And um, children. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The whole... So prior, prior to the, the end of slavery or the quote unquote end of slavery, the reformation of slavery, um, there were prisons, but they were, they were religious institutions. They were part of the Catholic church. They were not part of the, any official governments outside of the the Catholic church. Um, and it was only at the end of slavery in order to pass the, uh, 13th amendment, um, and, you know, Lincoln and them wanted the Southern states to sign off on it. They, they wanted one united country. You know, Lincoln has been quoted to say, hey, I, I wanted one country. If, if it was over slavery, we fought over slavery. If it was over something else, we would have fought over something else. I just wanted a united country. Because um, he wanted to make it really clear that he didn't actually care about black people. Um, so in order to get the Southern states to sign off on the 13th Amendment, they didn't, they, the 13th Amendment, they changed the language so it doesn't actually outlaw slavery. Um, what it says is that slavery is illegal except for as punishment of a crime. Mm. And then it was only after that did we get a huge investment into the infrastructure of prisons and eventually police because they wanted to incarcerate black people to continue enslaving black people. And that created what was first um, the peonage system and the... Um, convict leasing system. Um, and over the course of time, when peonage became illegal, which was in- incarcerating people for being in debt, um, and the black codes, which were part of the, the convict leasing system, got struck down in the Supreme Court, it was then replaced with Jim Crow, which was a little different because Jim Crow was about, it was called, quote unquote, separate but equal. Um, and as a response to Jim Crow, we had the civil rights movement, which the civil rights movement's tactic was to nonviolently challenge the system by not allowing it to work. So purposefully sitting places where black people are not allowed to sit, purposefully not riding buses, et cetera. 
Um, another way to describe that tactic is to say that they were breaking the law. And there is a very smart conservative politician. His name is Barry Goldwater. He wrote a book called Consciousness of a Conservative, which is still held as, you know, a cornerstone of conservative thought today. And he figured out if he, if he just framed, this was in the 1950s, he's from Arizona. If he just framed the civil rights movement as lawbreakers and framed himself as the law and order president who would protect white America, then white people would vote for him. And it worked. And he became the senator of, of Arizona many times over. And then he ran for, for president. He lost. Um, but the, the success of that tactic, people caught on to that. And Richard Nixon used it and ran as a law and order president. And then Ronald Reagan used it, ran it as a law and order president. And they understood there was power in getting people afraid and use uh, specifically of people of color. Mm-hmm. It, getting white people afraid of people of color and aligning themselves with law enforcement as white people's saviors and adding more and more money um, and laws uh, to law enforcement. Um, Bill Clinton did it and Joe Biden is doing it as we speak. And that's how we ended up with mass incarceration. And that is why prisons and police exist, uh, not because we need them. Right. I, the most devastating thing to me, I think is like, as we're waking up and learning, and as there are so many white people, frankly, who are like, we don't want to be a part of this though. We do want to figure out how to be abolitionists ourselves and how to support the best that we can. It feels like such a monumental obstacle to overcome. Like when we're talking about capitalism and how it plays into and fear as a tactic is so powerful. Religion uses fear to oppress people. Men use fear to oppress women. Like, I mean, it's it's used all the time. Fear is used to repress children from whatever. But it really comes down to, to this like scarcity complex, I think. Like if they, if people get too much, if we're all actually equal, if we all actually have equal opportunity, then there will be less for me, which again is just a fear-based concept. And I think. I mean, the only thing I can say is that as the scales have fallen from my eyes on these things, there's certain things that note, like you just all of a sudden see everywhere, fruit trees being one of the things that I began to notice in a lot of like affluent communities that have like big yards and everything where I live, there are fruit trees blossoming everywhere. And then you go to more impoverished places and they just, there's community gardens that people have popped up to try to solve some of that issue. But the fact is having this cement area where there is no, um, just reciprocal way of the earth giving back to people, of people actually having resource to be able to provide for themselves. That sort of thing was also, again, relegated to communities of affluence, or we have street cleaning in communities um, that are more cemented, that have less money. And then you get parking tickets for $75 that if they're inaccessible for you to pay for, your car will get towed and impounded. You won't have a car. You won't be able to go to work. There's so many ways that I see this system that keeps bogging people down and down and down. And even with whatever privilege I have, which is a lot, I have still contended with those things that the city the, the structures of the city that, that that are just against people that make it so much harder to just survive, let alone thrive in these communities. Yeah, that's why I encourage people to join local organizations. 
this, these, these problems will never be solved by individuals. You can't Tesla your way out of global warming. You can't recycle your way out of global warming. You can't like white fragility your way out of racism. Like, like, yes, do, do, you know, do the small things that we can all do to pitch in, but these, we, these are organized problems and we need to be organized in our solutions. And, and when folks are always saying like, what do I do? Where do I start? I always say, join local organizations. There are local um, abolitionists, local social justice organizations in every community around the country. Um, and for folks who are serious about trying to do something different, band together with other folks who are serious about doing something different, follow the leadership of those organizations who have been doing it for decades and didn't just come into it recently um, and throw down where you're most helpful. It's not it's it, it's only overwhelming when we try to put the burden of an entire system on ourselves, but that's not a burden for us to carry alone. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Um, okay. So I would actually love to spend the rest of our conversation really talking about feminism and patriarchy and the emotionality of what it is to be a man, um, whether they're in the prison industrial complex or not. Because I think that is it, that's just the real like crux of your work and the real beauty of it is helping other men actually speak the things that they haven't been given permission to say. Like again, in the documentary that you were in and the like the organization that you led and the way you led it, it was actually inviting men to speak about their crimes and process them with the pain that they deserve to be processed with. Had you found like when you were in prison before or when you were around male friends that those conversations were permitted or did you really have to be the one to lead people in them and to like invite people to express themselves in these specific ways? Um, I think that the work of the, the work starts with building the container. Um, yeah, those conversations don't often happen. So if you just bring it up randomly in a room full of dudes, it's, it's not going to work because people are, are not even used to that type of space. So the work actually starts with how do I build relationships with these folks where we even can be vulnerable with one another? Um, so that's what we did first with success stories in prison. And that's what I do now with, with all of my work as a producer, you know, I, I create space through my projects where people can be vulnerable. We do the same thing, um, on my podcast, Abolition X, we yeah, create love. a space where people can be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Um, that's the only space through which I feel like people can really grow. Yeah, I agree. I always say when you have trauma or you have secrets that are festering inside of yourself, they can really fester and grow in the dark and make you ill, make you act out in ways that you wouldn't have otherwise if you just had the support of your community or the support of a group of people that you could trust with those secrets and those emotions. Exactly. And that that is speaking, going back to your point earlier, when, when we were talking about how trauma, um, poverty and patriarchy begets harm it's that piece right there like holding on to all of those things will and will lead us to acting completely differently than we would if we were not holding on to all those things mm -hmm. and again back to shame 
you also brought up with me just in our private conversation, a point about um, really not relegating people to a certain number of actions that they've done or defining them by what they have done. Because I know for myself, of course, all of the worst things that I've ever done, I wouldn't want to just like see on a list and be like, this is Brenda. This defines who she is when there is so much capacity for human growth and evolution in someone's lifetime. So even these things that are so heavy and of course, so demonized and have caused so much harm, like murder, like rape, like violent offenses, how do you see people change when they're actually able to express their emotions around those events in their life? Like, how does it, I mean, I feel like in the documentary, I was just watching people almost lighten up or it looked like you could visibly see a burden Mm -hmm. being lifted off of their shoulders to just say, this actually made me really sad that I did this or whatever it may be. Yeah. You know, we, we say in success stories all the time, if you give, give people the opportunity to be human beings, they're going to take it. And it does free us. Mm. Um, And it's not in our best interest to shame each other ever. Shame is a neurotoxin. Shame disallows us from being accountable. Shame stops us from healing and growing. When we call people inmates, criminals, murderers, rapists, we are housing them. We are incarcerating them within their shame, which actually is on a physical level doing, doing something to their brains that's making it harder for them to be accountable, harder for them to change their behavior. I saw really, really interesting research about... Um, folks who are attracted to children. I now in my work, I never I I never worked with to my knowledge, I never worked with folks who were incarcerated for um sexually abusing children. But I saw this research that of this therapist who was attracted to children. And he started a support group for other people who are attracted to children where they could just talk it out. Mm-hmm. And they could just speak about it and they can speak about how they don't want to be like that. And they could just support each other and not acting on those feelings. And what showed over time is that they actually, uh, people, the participants of that group consumed less child pornography and abstained from any sexual abuse while they were in the group compared to folks who who were not in, in that group. Now, imagine... What would be possible, you know, people who, who, who sexually abuse children are seen as like the worst of the worst and we should just kill them and we should just torture them because they're just the worst people on earth. But actually, when we're able to engage them without shame, the harmful behavior stops. Mm-hmm. That's how toxic shame is. Damn. That's how toxic shame is. There are people who are being harmed right now who that harm could have been avoided how, had we dealt with that original harm doer without using shame. But once you use shame, you box somebody in. You, there is no place. The average person who, who, who could go to that dude's um, support group right now is not going to make it because they're not even going to say out loud that they have an attraction to children because we've charged it with so much shame. We see it. We, we think about justice in such a symbolic way. I need to show how wrong something is by charging it with shame and hatred and violence. Well, listen, you're, 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 empower, you're feeding the fire by giving it shame and hatred and violence. Give it understanding. Understanding isn't the same as excuse making. 
Understanding isn't saying that it's okay. It's just saying, I'm choosing to position my heart from a place of let me understand what you're going through so I can help you make another choice. That's, uh, albeit not necessarily with the same group of people, but that is the approach that I've seen work with the folks that we work with, who are often folks who, who have killed people and, and who, you know, I've committed robberies. I was a gang member. Like there's a lot of the worst things a person can do I have done. Um, and the reason why I was able to make uh, new decisions in my life was because I was able to deal with those things without shame. Mm. <sighs> that research does not surprise me at all. And I also find that invigorating because that is a huge part of my heart and the work that I want to do for men and this platform, because men harm a lot. And that mm -hmm. is because they are not allowed to address their own harm. And they're not allowed to express these things without shame, without being vilified or labeled as one particular thing. Mm -hmm. And I know it's crucially required to help us heal. And also the statistics are astounding and horrifying. I know the numbers they have are one in six men are sexually assaulted. I think, um, I feel like before the age of 18 or maybe before mm -hmm. the age of 25 or something, mm -hmm. but then, um, I really believe that that number is much higher because a lot of these happen within our own family systems. There is such a rampant problem with really incestuous harm that's being done within families. And that's even less likely to be reported because these people are often known in their community. They're uplifted. They're in positions of power. They're coaches, they're priests, they're people that are widely respected. So I'm not and only reported to whom? Who do we have good, to report it to? Good point. Good We're going to report it to, to folks who are going to come take our family member away, put yes. all our business in the streets. And now we're in a court process where the entire court process is who can gaslight who better. They're going to have a defense that's going to try to convince the, the survivors that it didn't happen. And then they're going to have the prosecution, which is going to try to erase all nuance and convince the jury that the, the person who did it is just a complete evil monster. We don't want that to be done to our family members, even when they've done something harmful. It's We don't have anywhere to turn to because all the system offers us is shame and violence. Okay. Can I tell you something like vulnerable for real, real quick? Yeah. Okay. I just like... um. If we're talking about shame, like I feel, you know, there's this like issue spiraling around my head of like white fragility. And I do feel shame when I try to conduct or, or have these conversations with people because I'm so afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing or I'm going to present things in the wrong way. And oftentimes the result of saying the wrong thing does result in shame because I'm on a pub public platform. So people mm -hmm. will like come so hard for me. And I find mm -hmm. these conversations that I'm trying to have can be like really stunted. And I find myself like slipping over words more frequently. Whereas if you and I were at like a coffee shop or something, I'd probably be talking a lot more freely. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I just wanted to like put that out there. So it wasn't just like swimming in my own body being like, oh God, I just like want to conduct this with so much respect and also acknowledge how far away I am from like really implicitly understanding what I need to understand with these issues. You know, yeah, I appreciate you, sh you, you sharing that. I feel similarly when I, when I speak publicly, yeah. because we are in um, just such a shame based culture. Right. Um, and I think that, I think it's healthy to be, 
weary i think it's healthy to be like deliberate and make sure that we're we're treating issues with respect especially if it's issues that are not connected to our lived experience or issues that we actually have a, a great deal of privilege in i just i just encourage you and and i and i i say this to myself all the time too um to just move with the goal of learning and yeah. it's like you kind of can't go wrong you know yeah. I mean, people will still come for me when I'm trying to learn, but I think I have to shed that fear as well. <laughs> but even in the coming for you, it's like, how do I, how do I treat this as a moment of learning and engage folks from a place of learning and, and just always looking to take it out of the space of right and wrong and move it to the space of like feedback. Oh, how could something be better? Great. I'm super happy to hear that. Even when it's from mouths that are, you know, coming with vitriol. Yeah. My quote for this season is by Rumi, be out beyond the field of right doing and wrong doing. There is a field. I'll meet you there. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> 100. So to wrap up this conversation, I'm definitely going to be giving everyone resources below, letting them know how to link up to you, how to support, how to get involved in their own communities. I think that is really the best piece of advice that has also invigorated me to be like, I don't know what's going on in my own community. That's a great way to get out of this like stagnation of shame and just figure out how to mobilize and how to educate myself and actually like get on the ground and do some good work. So thank you. Hell for yeah. That. yeah. Yeah. So I would love to just talk about you as a man. You're living in LA. I have a lot of experience with men in LA. I'm talking to a lot of women in a lot of different life circumstances, dealing with a lot of different types of men. Mm -hmm. And we are all having really similar experiences, though, because of patriarchy, because mm. of the toxicity that comes with masculinity. Um, uh, just as a plain example, it's really difficult sometimes to just communicate verbally to a man that you are dating or you're sleeping with without him telling you that you are being melodramatic or that you are addressing topics like too soon out of the gate or something when you are just trying to express express maybe like a level of vulnerability that he feels like it's too soon or something. So I'm just like curious how you find that like when you're out in the world, meeting people, dating people, uh, having relationships, even friendships with women, how this work you're doing and the education that you've had and the bell hooks that you've read has informed the way you behave with women and the way that you engage in dating. Yeah. Um, First of all, I'm just sorry to all of y'all and to everybody who has the unfortunate <laughs> experience of dating men. Oh, that's a really um, nice thing to hear a man say. Thank <laughs> you. I, I appreciate your apology. <laughs> it's rough out there. Yeah, it's rough. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I would like to think that the work that I've done and the mentors that I've had and has helped me to move differently in dating, um, I think what I what I try to do in dating is what I try to do. Is everything is just center empathy and just put myself in the other person's shoes at all times and like what their experience is and how I'm contributing to that. And um, knowing that like it's not, this isn't just like you know life is not just a movie starring me and everybody else is just characters like in their, in their movie, they are the, they are the star and they are looking at me across this dinner table. And um, I'm trying to 
you know, give uh, an experience that that enriches their life. So just doing things like asking questions and um, paying attention and communicating honestly, you know, it's just like. No, you just um, have me laughing because one of my friends comes home from dates all the time and she's always complaining. She's like, he did not ask me one question. I just listened to his life story the whole time. That was fascinating to me. You know, I was I was hanging out with a friend of mine and she had met a new friend that kind of has become both of our friends now. And he, and he's a dude. And um, we had hung out with him together. And she was like, isn't it so interesting that that he asks questions? Um, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I guess I never really thought about that before. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. It's like the basic stuff, but I mean, I'm just thinking about just all the obstacles. Like if you're not permitted to cry when you're a little kid, you know, women have been doing uh, emotional exercises with each other our whole lives. Like since elementary school, since before then, I can remember having an issue with a friend and crying and telling her, like, you really hurt my feelings. And on the converse, seeing men duke it out on the playground or not men, but like little boys at the time, like not being allowed to say, you hurt my feelings, even that phrase right there. So how can you possibly like overcome the obstacle of all those years of indoctrination into patriarchal ideas and into your strength and masculinity, really meaning that you're carrying the stoicism your whole life and you are non-emotional and you're always carrying the weight of your emotions, but without needing to show them to the rest of the world. Like what kind of advice would you give to men on just beginning to even shed layer by layer, these ideas that they have them of themselves and the way they're supposed to behave with women? You know, at that table, at that date, you have one person who is literally there to build intimacy and safe space to be vulnerable. And you have one person there who has been taught their whole life that um, vulnerability is weakness and mm -hmm. they can lose they can lose everything they have if they show any vulnerability. What I pause say on, Oh, sorry. I'm just like, I'm curious about that statement alone, like losing everything that you have. Is it really blown to that proportion where you feel that there would be that extreme of a loss to just express this makes me sad or angry? Of course, that's what's at stake. Men are not out here killing people over this stuff for no reason. We are literally taught that to be in order to be a real man, we have to be emotionless. And if we are not a real man, we are not a worthwhile person and that we are not safe if we're not a real man. The fear is if I don't, if, if I show any emotion, then I will be victimized, murdered, raped. Those are, those are what, are, if you follow the, the, the fear long enough, if you follow it all the way down the rabbit hole, those are the fears that men are making up for when we are choosing to be stoic and not vulnerable. Mm. Um, so yes, everything is on the line. Everything is at stake. And that is why, you know, men don't, don't, uh, defend patriarchy because we're evil. We defend patriarchy because we're, we're taught that our entire value, everything that is important about life is wrapped up in that. And if we give that up, then we give up everything. Yeah, exactly. 
What's so interesting that you just said is I've heard a long time ago, there was a study done. I don't, I don't even know the source of the study, but it was that they polled men and women and asked about their fears about the opposite sex. And when polled men or women said their fear of men was to be raped or murdered. And then men polled their fear was to be rejected. But it's interesting Mm. It's interesting what you're saying because that really topples it on its head and makes me understand that that's a really, really oversimplified and minimizing way of looking at the male experience because you are saying that you actually are afraid, like maybe encapsulated in this word rejection in that study is actually the same fear of egregious loss. I mean, you even brought up the word Mm -hmm. rape in your statement. Yeah, Mm. no, a hundred percent. Because if we were to follow that, Yes, the surface level fear is rejection. Why are you afraid of rejection? Well, if she rejects me, that means that I'm not good enough. Um, But it also means I'm not a real man because a real man, quote unquote, has women. So if she rejects me, she's rejecting my masculinity, which means she's rejecting my value. And if I don't have patriarchal masculinity, then I am a victim waiting to happen. Mm. Um, So yeah, all of the fears are, are wrapped up in that. How do you begin to shed? I I know a lot of men report that they are able to start shedding these ideas by just practicing vulnerability with women, because sometimes that feels like a safer space because women have been practicing vulnerability for so long. Do you think it's a matter of finding a community or a group of men that see life through the same lens? Like, what do you think are some practical steps to being like, I want to move through the world intuitively, I really think a lot of this too comes back to like inner child work. Like if you really look at the kid you were like, Richie, I love like reading or hearing about you expressing yourself through style and art and music. And there's so much sensitivity and playfulness with that. And like the colors that you wear and the self-expression you have, like you can tell me if this is true or not, but I imagine that harkens back to that like inner child of what brings you true delight and happiness is that yeah. true? Yeah, a hundred percent. That that is why um, so much of my aesthetic right now is based in like '90s and early 2000s cartoons. <laughs> Hell <because> yeah! <laughs> I try to give uh, yeah because I feel like it disarms us. It takes it, it gives us access to our pre patriarchal selves mm-hmm. when we see Arnold and Tommy and Penny. You know. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but yes, absolutely. Um, my advice to other men would be to practice vulnerability with ourselves. Mm. Practice vulnerability with yourself. When you, when, when that is hard, that is hard work for me to do. You know, I've, I've, yeah. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard for me to be patient with my own emotions. It's hard for me to validate myself when I feel really sad or, or I feel really hurt or I feel really insecure or I feel really scared. Um, I would not recommend that men practice vulnerability with women first. I would say practice vulnerability with yourself. Um, I don't think we need to put more labor on women to like hold the messy vulnerability of men. It's like (laughs) my first time trying to be vulnerable and you're here. So you have much more skill than I do. So you inevitably become my coach and my mom and my girlfriend at the same time. That's weird. I I, I don't want to, I wouldn't recommend that. I would say practice it with ourselves and make space for feeling okay with our own emotions by ourselves. So that way, when we are in intimate, vulnerable space with other people, we've built enough enough self-trust to do that confidently. 
That's beautiful. I love that. Uh, Maybe you don't feel like, uh, I don't want you to feel like you're overstepping, but I'm also maybe curious about your advice for women, like receiving male vulnerability, because we have also been indoctrinated into these patriarchal toxic masculine systems. And you know how often I'll, I've heard women say, for example, I could never fuck with a guy who slept with a guy, or if a guy cried in front of me, I'd be so turned off. And I'm like, I, I feel the opposite. I'm turned on by both of those things. (laughs) So, but you know, I feel like that's the way women participate to reiterate these ideas of like, no, I'm not a safe place for your vulnerability, you know? I suppose my advice to women um, who date men would be if men's vulnerability makes you uncomfortable to just sit with why. Mm. Just explore that on your own. And what what does that mean? I, I don't think we do enough work around our attraction. So so often we treat attraction like it's magic. And in many ways it is, but we, we treat it like it's ununderstandable and it's not connected to our thoughts in any other ways. But a lot of, in a lot of ways, what we're attracted to and what we're not attracted to, we, we are, are based on stories we tell ourselves in our mind. Um, what stories have you attached to male vulnerability that makes it unattractive to you? Um, and do those stories best serve you? Yeah. I'm thinking I used to think, um, I just want a partner that I could survive the apocalypse with for some reason. Mm -hmm. That was a statement I said over and over and over again. And I actually linked up with somebody and I used to, I was like, I could survive the apocalypse with them. I think you'd like throw down, you could fuck people up. Like I could just see them carrying gun. Like I was getting into all this. I don't know these, these ideas of what a man protecting me would be. Cause as someone who has been really independent and had to fend for herself, I think I really had this idea of who can come protect me. Like, can I just sit down for a second and not have to be the protector of my own self? But we did go through an apocalypse. Like it was an apocalyptic moment to go through Corona, to be contending with all of these things. And I found in that kind of apocalypse, that kind of awakening, we were not good partners because we didn't have the real root. Like we didn't have the vulnerability. We didn't have that like deeply rooted love and respect and honor. And I was like, well, that's funny. I went through the apocalypse with someone and we didn't survive because it wasn't Hmm. exactly what I needed it to be. And it really warped my view in a good way of actually what I am looking for in a partner. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, all of that said, again, I've just been so honored by this conversation because I am truly, honestly, deeply astounded by the work that you are doing and the the importance that I put on what you have done and what you have instigated and the organization that continues and then even organizations that may sprout up that are empowered and inspired by what you built. I just, I just tip my hat to you in a million (laughs) ways. And I thank you for the man that you are, the man you're presenting and, and the person that you're allowing other people to see like, Hey, I could do that. I could be free of this. So I thank you for freeing yourself so you could free others. Thank you so much, Brenda. Thank you. That, that means a lot to me. That, that really is what I aspire to do. So it's an honor to hear, hear you say that. That's very affirming. Yeah, of course. It's from the bottom of my heart. 
very obvious as a matter of fact <laughs> okay well thank you so much for this conversation we love you all god bless